0: Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond far-side chats.
1: Hello and welcome to Leave Our World A Better Place. My name is Kasha, and today I'm once again speaking to Toby Sinclair from End Beyond Asia. Toby will be sharing an insider's view of the culture and history of India, speaking about some of the fascinating natural history documentaries he has worked on, and telling us how and beyond can help create special interest itineraries in Asia. Toby, welcome
0: back. Thank you very much. It's good to be here and brave of you to ask me back.
1: We've had so much fun talking to you and you have some really amazing and colorful stories to tell. Earlier on in our podcasts, when we spoke about that very colorful overland journey that you had from the UK to India, we spoke about... What motivated you to travel and to explore Asia at that time was your interest in history, specifically in India and in other Asian countries. But ultimately, as your story developed and grew, it was wildlife that gave you the opportunity to live and work in South Asia. Can you tell us a little bit about how that developed? Did you ever have an opportunity to go back to your initial interest in history and culture?
0: Um, Yes, I have. I mean, one of the aspects of My work is tourism and working on films, and today with And Beyond in Asia, is that part of our work involves wildlife, part of our work involves organizing tours, working with national parks, sanctuaries, scientists on sort of shared conservation issues. But the bulk of our work as Mm an inbound touring company in India, Bhutan, Nepal, and Sri Lanka is to do with cultural tourism, the history the places the way of life culinary scope the landscapes of india or of the region our life is not restricted to wildlife as much as some of us would like it to be mm-hmm. i've always been passionate about wildlife and i've been incredibly fortunate to work on natural history films with a number of companies from national geographic and discovery to the bbc and a few others but the history of the region has been you could say more cerebral interest, so I would divide sort of wildlife and that project and the natural history of the region as a passion, one that I'm very concerned about, and my interest in history is perhaps more cerebral, and mm. I'm equally involved in many ways in the conservation issues that to do with the cultural heritage of the region and my concerns about that. I've been lucky that I've managed mm-hmm. to achieve a balance and keep both sides of my brain involved and inspired in some ways.
1: That's a really lucky position to be in. And in a sense, I think while India's wildlife is incredibly varied, I suppose it is the culture that's that's sort of been a huge draw card over the years. And I know that while and beyond in Africa certainly where it originated it was very much known as a as a safari operator. The scope of what the company does in Asia, as in South America, is much broader than that. You've mentioned the cultural aspect and the wildlife aspect. Do you find that when people travel to Asia, are they going specifically for culture or specifically for wildlife? Or is it a combination of the things that acts as a draw card? And does this reflect in the kind of experiences that NBeyond offers as well?
0: The answer really is yes, yes, and yes. We offer and operate tours that are sort of more cultural or historically based. And some are just pure (laughs) sightseeing-orientated programs. Many of them have greater depth. And we do programs that are purely wildlife. People who come to India hoping to Mm -hmm. see the big cats or rhinoceros and elephants and the like, and great forests and jungles, but also deserts Mm -hmm. and wetlands and mangrove swamps. It's a very varied landscape. A few of them will say, while we're in India looking for tigers, we'd like to see the Taj Mahal. We do have programs that don't even include that. I think the culture of South Asia, the cultures of South Asia, and the faiths that underpin those cultures have given great protection and have allowed India to retain a surprising amount of wildlife. And I'm using India in a slightly generic sense when I sort of think of India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh Mm -hmm. as well, and Sri Lanka within this basket of nations because the landscape is contiguous. Nepal and Bhutan are predominantly Himalayan and Sri Lanka is an island and Bangladesh is Mm -hmm. sort of flat, riverine areas. But they all link up to parts of India. And the overarching historical and cultural base of the landscape, Hinduism, Brahmanical Hinduism, and Buddhism, and Jainism, and later faiths such as Sikhism, and to a lesser extent, aspects of Islam that were introduced into the area. Mm -hmm. They revere life, they protect life. So within a country of 1.3 billion people, India is 1.3 billion people, we still have Mm -hmm. tigers and leopards and snow leopards and golden cats, and caracals, and fishing cats, and rusty spotted cats, things that you may not have heard of. We have two species of pangolin, which is a sort of species that's in the, in the news worldwide these days. We have 1,200 bird species in India, and many, many subspecies. We have great amphibian diversity, butterfly diversity. Mm-hmm. The Western Ghats in southern India, together with Sri Lanka, has greater diversity as known and recognized hotspots such as Costa Rica or Madagascar. And those things tend to be overlooked. But one of the reasons why India has this wildlife diversity is because of its overarching sort of cultural framework and the faith that comes out of that. And part of my work, as Mm -hmm. we've talked before over the years, has been making films. I act as a sort of local location manager, doing research, mm-hmm. come up with some ideas, and handle all the logistics and the permits and the permissions for a series of different programs. And over the years, it hasn't just been wildlife. I've been incredibly lucky to work with some great historians, Niall Ferguson, now at Harvard, one of the great British historians, or Charles Allen, Bethany Hughes, who was a classicist, and interesting characters that you learn from like the great novelist and Nobel Prize winner, V.S. Naipaul. And these have been what I would call cultural or historical programs. I made a film which, in a sense, overlaps the two, and I was the sort of associate producer on a three-part series for the BBC on the Ganges River. We broke it up geographically. It was in the mountains and the sources and the, mm-hmm. the plains and then the delta, of the, the great delta of the Ganges. But within that landscape, the culture, the people, the ways of life were incredibly important and very varied. So that was a lovely opportunity to combine natural history and people. Mm -hmm. And then I did a series of sequences for another BBC Discovery series called Human Planet. So we looked at how people live within their landscapes. Yes. So it could be people living in the, the deserts of Rajasthan in western India and how their lifestyle varies from in the west to in the eastern part of the country, where you have some of the wettest land on the planet. Cherrapunji, which is in an area called Meghalaya, just north of Bangladesh, but very much within India, is considered by many, although this admittedly is disputed, as the wettest place on our planet. And how do people adapt to live there? So it's people in their landscape. So that, it's slightly anthropological, but it also involves sort of architecture. I and mean, You can't build a bridge with cement and steel because it'll just rot. You can't build a bridge with timber cut from a tree because mm-hmm. it would rot. But you can build a bridge with living trees. And this may be an odd concept, but... Think of one of the great fig trees, the ficuses with their aerial roots. So what they do is they plant or they identify a fig tree on a bank of a river and find one which is on the opposite bank. And then they take these aerial roots from one side and sort of knot them with the ones from the tree on the opposite bank. Now, this is not something that's going to be ready in six months. This is going to be ready in 30 to 40 years a different generation is going to complete the project. So they weave and guide and nurture these aerial roots mm-hmm. into a sort of net. And then they link both sides of this little gorge or this little valley. And they will place paving stones, slabs, in, at the base of it. And the tree will work its way around and lock in those paving stones. So two fig trees, on opposite banks of a stream or a river, take the aerial routes, weave them together. 40 years later, you put down paving mm-hmm. stones and you, you can walk across it mm-hmm. on any time, 24-7, every day of the year for the next 200 years. Mm-hmm. I find it extraordinary how people adapt to landscapes yes. and different things. Just in India alone, we have that desert, we have, of course, so many other landscapes, mm-hmm. and this wet, wet, wet part of the world. So I found that was an extraordinary project. And I've been lucky, actually, to go back to these root bridges, as they're called, twice to film. And, of course, the best part of this job is not the filming. It's the recce's, where you can go out and explore and ask questions and you're not having to carry bags and cases. And so just to be able to go out on one's own with a notebook and a mm-hmm. camera. I love the recce's. That's, that is, the, in many ways, that is the real high point of the projects. The price you pay, and it's a lovely price, is going out mm-hmm. with a crew and filming, which is going back, learning more. You learn on every trip. I've always been fascinated in Buddhism. I mean, yes. I think it came from my initial interest in Tibet and the Tibetan history, which is one of the reasons what drew me out here. And this great desire to see those wonderful carved buddhas in afghanistan at Bamiyan, which i was lucky to do mm. of course they were blown up by the taliban i think in uh, 1999 or 2000 but i was lucky <laughs> to see them and go there and buddhism has always fascinated me and i've worked mm-hmm. on three films one for national geographic which was about buddhist archaeology one for the bbc which was about the buddha's mm-hmm. philosophy and the fact that and this is also something i find extraordinary three of the great faiths or philosophies of this world appeared on the planet at the same time socrates in greece which is of course the basis of so much which sort of has filtered through into christian thought confucius mm-hmm. in china and the buddha in india they were contemporaries wow. at more or less the same time in mm-hmm. in the calendar they created these philosophies mm-hmm. which form the basis of so much of humankind today. So with Bethany Hughes, who's a classical scholar, she made this program comparing Socrates, Confucius, and the Buddha. Mm-hmm. Well, not comparing them as in a philosophical sense, but just their parallel lives. And that was an extraordinary opportunity mm-hmm. to make a program with her. And I'd filmed with her before on Hinduism. And Then with PBS, the American broadcaster I made a film on the Buddha, which was quite a long film, which was Buddhist art. The philosophy and the Buddhism and poetry, with lots of interviews and people reading their poetry. Mm -hmm. But it was narrated with with Richard Gere, which was quite an experience. And we've interviewed Mm -hmm. people like the Dalai Lama. I have to consider myself very privileged, not just to work with these people and hear them, and learn from them but also learn about the stories which motivate them mm. and learn from that for myself and part of a love of history of the region is an appreciation of yes. the buildings and the architecture mm. and you could and the sort of the concrete evidence of a civilization so i remember once working on a bbc series about what the ancients taught us and that involved going to Indus civilization or Harappan civilization, as mm-hmm. it's now called, sites in Western India in an area called Kutch. And in a hundred miles mm-hmm. inland is a place called Dolavira, which is a city made 4,000 years ago. It has the most amazing drainage system, water system. Mm-hmm. It was on the coast and it is now inland because of earthquakes. And things that have happened in the last 4,000 yes. years. But to see in the middle of these salt flats what is very evidently a dock and to walk down the steps to that dock and know that it was made 4,000 years ago by a people who've left writing and tablets and also what we can only assume to be a signboard of some form, which which is in stone in, in, it's popped up on the edge of this civic area but we can't understand the writing I mean archaeologists have been working on it for a hundred years since the first Harappan site discovered in the, mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century we still mm-hmm. don't know what the script yes. is uh, but to see a signboard in mm-hmm. something that you and it's one thing to, for me mm-hmm. to look at it in Greek or not be able mm-hmm. to understand you know, Arabic but this is looking at a signboard and know that there's no one on this planet mm. who understands that, who can read that. But 4,000 years ago, a community obviously did, because they built it, and they lived there. Now, these are magical experiences, if you interested in the weird and the obscure, but also mm-hmm. what makes us tick. And I like to think I am interested. Well, I... Um, and I find it motivates me for a lot of things. But what it has given me from a professional point of view is over the years, we've built up as a company, because all these film trips are handled by our team in, be it in Delhi or Kathmandu or Bhutan or Sri Lanka, and our respective associate offices. So whether it's colleagues like Sohail, mm-hmm. our managing director, or others in our office, sometimes I'm not able to go. So they go. And collectively, we build up a great knowledge base.
1: I can imagine. So if
0: someone writes to us and says, and this is maybe completely unexpected to our colleagues in other parts of the world, but asks, can you take me to a Harappan site? I want to see a civilization site. The answer is, yes, we can. And we know where to go. And we know where you're going to stay. And we know how, it's go- how long it's going to take you to get there. And it's rather like our offices in Lima and Cusco and mm-hmm. Peru are able to guide people and take people to inca sites and in the sacred valley and Machu Picchu and things like that so there's a sort of parallel in a way between how we operate in south asia and how we operate in south america and i know there are many places in africa mm that we could arrange for people to go to, whether it's Islamic trading centers on the east coast of Africa, or Zanzibar, or Lamu Island, or even the ruins of Zimbabwe, I'm sure we can organize, which is one of the great archaeological sites of the world, but so little known. Because most of our clients think of Africa as wildlife. Most of our clients think of India as tigers and Taj Mahal. And that's it. But we have both amazing breadth of subjects and we have depth of variety and because of these films, our knowledge base.
1: Yeah, it really is a very, very in-depth specialist knowledge that you have but also obviously on such a range of different subjects. I mean, I can see just from the documentaries that you've done, everything from religion to architecture to art to to all kinds of topics. And as you say, a lot of people will come to India just wanting the Taj Mahal and the tigers or the golden triangle and the tigers. But India is such a huge country and it's got such a range of differences in terms of culture and even food and religion. Is there something that you wish you could encourage visitors to India to bear in mind? You I know? do,
0: because it shares so much. I mean Buddhism and Hinduism originated within India, spread to Nepal, spread to Tibet, spread to Southeast Asia, spread to Sri Lanka. In terms of religions and faith, I mean I'd worked on a program for the BBC which was called Around the World in mm-hmm. Eighty Faiths, but we did you know the Indian program. I mean four of the world's major religions Hinduism. Buddhism, known by all, mm-hmm. but Jainism and Sikhism, the Sikhs, yes. originated in India. Many of them were reform movements, but they have took root. But India also has perhaps the mm-hmm. oldest Christian community in the world. One of the 12 apostles, Thomas, doubting Thomas, came to India in 50 AD and converted the number varies, 6, 7 or 8 families in southwestern India, the tip in an area called Kerala. And then in the course of his Mm -hmm. mission, he traveled across, he died, and his burial on the edge of what is today the city of Chennai or Madras. Islam came to India in two ways. Mm -hmm. By boat, because of all the Arab traders across the Indian Ocean, Mm -hmm. which is how Christianity got to India. And how spices were traded back and forth for hundreds, thousands of years. A thousand places in South India where Roman coins have been found. There's an archaeological dig in Kerala now, which has just found Roman jewelry, mm-hmm. amphora, which the oil and wine used to come from the Mediterranean. It doesn't mean there was a Roman settlement, mm-hmm. it just means there was trade. There was definitely trade. And then also, of course, Islam came a more sort of belligerent form of Islam, came across the land on horseback, whereas the sort of Islam that came across the seas was brought by merchants, which is much softer. And that was the Islam that is today in Java, southern India, Sumatra, and places like Southeast Asia. So seeing how those faiths populate the landscape of South Asia and the cultures and the food Mm -hmm. that comes out of that, architecture whether it's a fort or a temple or a palace, reflects aspects of those faiths. Some of them are immediately identifiable. That's a Jain temple, or that's a Hindu temple. You look at it, you can tell the difference. Or that's a Buddhist temple, or that's Sikh. Or This palace was obviously built by people from a particular culture at a particular time because of the architectural styles. And that's another level, another dimension, and the depth of knowledge that we have built up. And I've been lucky enough to be part of. India mm-hmm. alone is as complicated as Europe is, and as diverse, perhaps more diverse. Yes. India is, I mean, it has these four indigenous religions and two imported religions. So there are six major faiths are practiced across India. And mostly with great equanimity and, and tolerance. I mean, Europe is predominantly Christian, although and some Islam and, some, and, and Judaism. But India, we have these six. And we have 22 recognized languages and hundreds of other languages. We have parliament that people can talk in in 22 languages. You have all the culinary variations that come with that. You have the costumes the facial features, the genetics of the individual. India is a great big melting pot. It's a mixture of indigenous and imported immigrant communities. India has that variation. Nepal mm-hmm. alone has 150 recognized dialects. <laughs> that's, just, that's Nepal. Yes. Bhutan has four or five recognized dialects. It actually has two languages between the East and the West. It has a different language. Sri Lanka, they speak three languages: English as an imported language, Tamil, which has been there for thousands of years, although a lot of people politically pretend it's an imported language and singular and If you look at old singular inscriptions on a wall on a cave in a cave which may go back two thousand years, it uses the same script Rami script, as is used in parts of India for their languages so While the languages are different. The script mm-hmm. at one point was very similar, yeah. and then it those evolved. So, as I say, there's the weave of all these cultures and all these elements form for some people a very confused ball of wool. Uh, not you don't know where the beginning is or the end, but also an incredibly wonderful picture. And I like to think that as and beyond offices in Delhi and Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and everywhere else. We know which pieces of the jigsaw to bring together to create a picture for our guests. We can vary it. We can focus on architecture. We can focus on wildlife. We can focus on history, battlefields. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting at my desk in um, Delhi at the moment. Yes. And in front of me, and I've just picked them up and they're in my hand are two very heavy mm. round balls, about the slightly bigger than an, a marble, a chi- a glass marble that a child would have. And these are grapeshot out of a cannon. And I picked them up on a battlefield where 20,000 East India Company forces led by a British general in September 1803 met 100,000 forces mm-hmm. uh, led by a German general. I mean, why are these people fighting on a foreign land?
1: You know, you've spoken about this incredible range of diversity. As we said, it is so fascinating, but it's it's so layered and so deep that it really could be very confusing to the average traveler. You know, if you have somebody who they want to travel to India for their holiday of, you know, a week or, or, or 10 days, there is such an incredible range of, of things to focus on. How do you even begin? Do you look at it by region? Do you look at it by theme or by interest or whatever it is that, that actually means something to you? And how do you even begin to, to know what to want? And why is an operator like beyond so essential if you actually really do want to get an idea of the region and not just have a, a sort of a very superficial glimpse of, of, of the many layers that, that South
0: Asia has got to offer? I think there are two or three answers to that quite complicated question in a way. Most <laughs> yes. people on their first visits India can be and I, I something that I totally disagree with and don't understand, but I respect that it can be seem intimidating. It is large, it's loud and noisy, it has strange foods, strange languages, mm-hmm. strange looking people, strange smells. But in some respects, that's all part of the fun. I think it's the skill of our staff who have a fairly broad knowledge themselves and they have their own sort of special edin- mm, interests. We have people in the office who yeah. are experts in the Punjab or experts in southern India uh, when I, in the sense that they have more knowledge than others in the office. So we go to them for details when we need it. So mm-hmm. success of anyone, anything we do in life, is to know who to go to when we want information. We know who to ask questions mm-hmm. of, And that's not only do yes. we learn, but we then are able to do our jobs better. And not to be afraid. If we pretend that we know everything, we get into trouble because mm-hmm. someone's going to trip us up. And I think that's part of our philosophy. We have teams of people with res- different expertise mm-hmm. and we work together. So if someone writes to us and says, I'm very keen to come to India, yes. but I don't know anything about it. What do you suggest? We would normally, for a first mm-hmm. visit, and we would say this, mm-hmm. for your first visit to India, we think you should come to Delhi, go to Agra, see the Taj Mahal, look at some of the sort of classic Mughal buildings, maybe go to Jaipur, see what's in Rajasthan, mm-hmm. enjoy some of the, the great the, the shopping and the, and the handicrafts of that area. And we believe you will have a great trip. And you will also get a taste of how varied India is. And we will look at future trips in different parts of the country. I mean, we've had people, and we have people Mm -hmm. now, who are coming back on their eighth, ninth. We have someone coming on, I think, on their 11th return trip to India. To be honest, when we get to 11th, we start scratching our heads and Mm -hmm. saying, because we need to find something that they haven't been to before something that they will find stimulating which has the right caliber of accommodation that we have good articulate locally experienced guides in that area and we can do it but sometimes you know yes. i'm particularly fascinated in in in, in buddhism and so mm. i recently put together an itinerary which i think we've only been asked to do once which was traveling in the footsteps of the historical Buddha. We have that knowledge base, and that has come because I've been lucky to work on these three films apart from my own personal interest. So I have been – I mean, when the Buddha died, he said, there were eight places that were of real importance in my life, which Mm -hmm. you could go back to and remember me. But of these, four are the most important out of the eight. But mm-hmm. I've been lucky. I've been to all those eight places. I have images of all eight places. I know the logistics and where to stay in each of those eight places. So we could put together, we wouldn't send someone to eight places in 10 days. But we could send someone to four places in 10 days. And one of them is in Nepal, which mm-hmm. is where the Buddha was born, at a place called Lumbini. Mm-hmm. And the others are within India, in the sort of Ganges Plain. Uh, unfortunately, Logistically, we can't do mm-hmm. a chronological tour of, of his life. There's too much going back and forth. We sort of do his birth and death, and then the place that he achieved enlightenment, and then the place where he gave his first sermon. So yeah. we break the sequence, the chronological sequence. Mm-hmm. But it works, and it's, and it's a delightful program. And I think another part of our skill is knowing who Mm -hmm. to go to as our escorts Mm -hmm. and guides, whether Mm -hmm. they're an expedition leader or um, a historian. Of course. Or, I mean, we've had questions, people who would like to do Mm -hmm. food tours. But they, I mean, they think of Indian food Mm -hmm. as one type generically, but it's as varied as the 22 recognized languages. You know, there are different Mm -hmm. ways to cook a particular vegetable, depending upon which part of the country you're in or which side of the river you're on. So we try mm-hmm. and, a bit like those living trees in near cherapunji, mm-hmm. weaving together the yes, aerial yes. roots, that's what we like to do with the itineraries mm-hmm. that we create. Something that comes together, holds you, mm-hmm. gets you to the other side, safe and informed.
1: That's an absolutely lovely way of putting it. Now, Toby, you know, we've spoken quite a lot about the documentaries that you've worked on, and it's obvious that you've gotten a great deal of experience in various subjects through those. Is there anything else that you really, really want to work on? Any particular topics or, or things that you'd absolutely love to explore in more depth? Or is there perhaps something that you wish that you had worked on or that you sorry that you missed?
0: There was one historical film series for the BBC called About India by a historian called Michael Wood. And I would love to have worked on that program. I wasn't available. And actually, Mm -hmm. to be honest, I don't think I was asked because I was making a three-part program on the Ganges at that time. But it's a very good series. I've watched it quite a few times and I've read Michael's book. And he is an extremely knowledgeable, passionate Mm -hmm. about India. And that would have been a privilege to have worked with him for 18 months mm-hmm. or two years on a project like that. But I did something else that I wanted to do, which was this film on the Ganges. So I really cannot complain. I worked on a program which was about the history of Kew Gardens, which is the great botanical gardens in London. And there were three areas in, around the world where in the late 1700s, when Kew was being set up, subsidiary gardens were set up. And one was Calcutta. Botanical gardens in Calcutta that go back to that same period of the 1780s. One was in Jamaica (laughs) and the other was in the Cape in South Africa. And I had the opportunity, I was doing the Calcutta program to work in one of the others. And then it clashed with something. And I would love to have gone and looked at the West Indies because there was an exchange. The Calcutta gardens have an avenue of mahogany trees that came from Honduras in Central America. And they were planted 200 years ago. I would love to have gone to see what was planted in Jamaica, what had been taken from here, or what was in the Cape. I mean, you, outside Cape Town, you have this amazing botanical garden on the edge of Cape Town, where I've been fortunate to go to, and I have actually been to the one in Jamaica. But I would love to have worked mm-hmm. on it in a sort of more academic sense on the program and learn more, rather than just go to either of them as a tourist. That was a little missed opportunity. I'd love to do a film more about Bengal and the history of Bengal on both sides, in in Bangladesh and in the Indian side, because it's it's a common landscape. Mm -hmm. It's a shared history. It's a shared language. It's a shared food. The difference is one side is Islam and one side is Hindu. But the whole landscape was Buddhist at one point. I would love to work Mm -hmm. on something like that. I mean, that's sort of on the unity of the area Mm -hmm. rather than vision we have too many of in our life that's highly unlikely but it would be a nice idea and i did also put proposal into the bbc once many years ago to do a sort of natural and cultural history Mm -hmm. of the indian ocean and that is something i've got written up and there are some Mm -hmm. extraordinary links i mean islam and christianity came across the indian ocean from the red sea to India and Sri Lanka and beyond. Spices were traded from Indonesia to India and from India through to the Red Sea and up into the Mediterranean. Genetically, the people who live in Madagascar came from Indonesia. Islam came down the east, you know, Oman-controlled Zanzibar and Lamu Island. They were Omani territories or fiefdoms at one point. I mean, these are not necessarily nice bits of history, but it is history and it is interest. And from a natural history Mm. point of view, I mean, we've now discovered that we have sperm whales Mm -hmm. on the east coast of Africa who also migrate to the west coast of India. We've got bird species that travel around. We have the islands in the Indian Ocean, Mm -hmm. Seychelles, Mm -hmm. Mauritius, Reunion, which were part of Gondwana land. And when India separated from... Africa, when it was all one supercontinent, these little bits of granite mm-hmm. floated in the ocean, so to speak. Pop, are still there. And there are species in, say, the Seychelles. The closest living yes. relative on the planet is on islands to the east of India, in the Nicobars. How are they connected? How do they get from one to the other? And then, of course, we have all the the way that the atolls and the, the coral islands and reefs of the Indian Ocean became colonized. Mm-hmm. So that's another story. There are many different levels. I mean, Skotra Island, which is just off Oman, Yemen coast, mm. is a sort of mini Galapagos. Mm-hmm. Aldabra Island in the Seychelles, grand, giant turtles and things. And also all the endemism that takes place in the Indian, mm. the Indian Ocean would be a fascinating cultural and natural history of programming. Yes. In my view these things weave together just to have lovely pictures of birds mm. and mm. animals mm. is fantastic and landscapes, but the people, I mean Mauritius didn't have any humans mm. on it until four or five hundred mm. years ago and then of course the dodo and things were wiped out very quickly but there's also another link, I mean the Dutch trade in the, across the Indian Ocean and they had trade with the Mughal emperors in India in the 1600s. And they came from Mauritius, and they brought a dodo to India and presented it to the Mughal emperor. So the only picture that we know of, of a dodo drawn from life, is a Mughal miniature. So these links, what do these stories tell I mean, the stories tell us that we're more unified than we pretend to be today, and I would love to explore more of that.
1: Toby, you have a fascinating way of looking at things, and you know such a wide range of knowledge, and and a really great way of bringing it all together.
0: I've just been around for rather too long. <laughs> <laughs> I pick up, and I have, and I have a mind, and a, mind, I won't say a brain. I have a mind which is a bit like a sponge. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, mm-hmm. some things for, drip out of it, and I forget them forever.
1: <laughs> I sincerely hope not. It's happening <laughs> In all the decades that you've spent in South Asia, I know and you've traveled that area so extensively. Do you have any favorite places that you just go back to again and again for, for some reason or another?
0: I have two landscapes. I, I, a landscape is a word that I think I possibly overuse that are very important to me. Mm-hmm. One actually is a national park, Kana National Park in the heart of India. I was in, very lucky to... Lived there, actually, inside mm-hmm. the park, but just in the edge in you know, a forest forest mm-hmm. house over the winter of nineteen seventy eight seventy nine I'd been in India for a year, oh, I was no. young, impressionable and very impressed, and we were trying to set up a camp. I was yeah. helping set up a camp together with my then fiance who subsequently got married in nineteen seventy nine and we didn't have much business so I had the freedom. We didn't have any money either, but mm-hmm. I did have enough money once a week to put petrol in the Jeep. And I could drive where I wanted. I didn't need to take a guard or a guide or a, mm-hmm. didn't have to have anyone with me. I just went out with a pair of binoculars and my notebook and a f- flask of coffee and a bottle of water and some parathas, Indian food, and mm-hmm. spent the day. And that was a huge privilege. And then, so almost 20 years mm-hmm. later, we spent 400 days filming in that same park for the sequence series called Land of the Tiger, but also for a B- BBC and National Geographic special on tigers. Sohail Gupta and I worked there. Mm-hmm. He was with one cameraman and I was working mm-hmm. with the other. I was able to stay right in the middle of the park for two months. That is absolutely uh, amazing. In June and July, so I could I watched the monsoon arrive. I was there in September where the roads were so inundated. It was a very heavy monsoon that year. That one journey, which would normally take ninety minutes, took me seven mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine those were real. So Karna is probably is definitely the great natural history landscape that I would go back to at any time. And the other place is called Humpy, which is a city which started in the sort of thirteen hundreds, but there were, but there was something there before. And then the rulers of that area, the Vijayanagara emperor, was defeated in 1560s Mm. in a battle and it's been unoccupied ever since and it's an amazing landscape and a fantastic city of extraordinary buildings in the last 40 years tremendous archaeology has taken place there and things have been dug out of the ground and these buildings are set within a landscape of huge boulders and i never get bored walking around there. you can spend days walking around And if I go back after four or five years, there's something else that's been restored or renovated or reconstructed or just exposed. Or there's an area that for the last 20 years has been fenced off because they've been digging in the area and suddenly the fences are gone and I can go and have a look. So there's always something new to find. It covers a large area. And it's, I don't know, I must have been Mm there eight or nine times, I suppose, in the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that must be absolutely surreal to see. It's Special. And in fact, mm-hmm. two of the reasons why I went re- in the last few years wow. was because we, we were filming sloth bears at a place called Doroji, which is only 15 kilometers away in the same sort of rocky landscape. So these mm. trips to film bears gave me an opportunity always to spend a few days in this archaeological landscape. I've been exceptionally lucky because I've always been able to merge these two interests into a sort of common exploration mm. of south asia.
1: So I'm, I'm quite interested to know I know I know India's still in quite um, quite an intense lockdown over the, the covid pandemic so but when things do relax and you're able to travel which one of the interests will win out where where are you going to go first?
0: It really depends when on the on the month and when it happens. If I could get in an airplane and go wherever I wanted and I think during the winter months I would ah, go to Kana. Yes those lovely meadows and stay there Mm -hmm. i would go to central india to a bit of an area on the edge of the forest in central india Um, (laughs) possibly to Panna national park because friends have a beautiful project there where we often send guests called sarai at toria and that it's not my favorite park but it's one of my favorite places and i and i love these people um husband and wife he's a Mm-hmm. tiger researcher and she's a photographer go and stay with them and just have a change of scene and change of food and change mm-hmm. of conversation and a sense of freedom yes. to be honest uh, that's probably where i might end up going well I, I certainly hope that you're soon able to do just that i think i have an opportunity to ask you that question where would you go Yes,
1: that's a very good question. You've just taken me completely <laughs> off guard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. I
1: think it depends a lot on on where and how, and just getting in the car and going. To be honest, Sodwana Bay in in South Africa, very close to Pinda, actually, but one of the most beautiful dive destinations ever. And
0: uh, I have to say, having been to Pinda, and been lucky enough to stay at three of the lodges there, I wouldn't hesitate to go mm. back. To Pinda, uh, if I was stuck in South yeah. Africa at, uh, or found myself there at the end of these <laughs> lockdowns, Pinda or Ngala would, N'gala would be yeah. my go to place.
1: For me, quite uh, often it, it ends up being Pinda because years. it's so close to Sudwana sort of Bay and I just get the chance to combine two passions, which are diving and wildlife. So, really amazing combination that.
0: Well, thank you again for bringing me on board for this. It's been a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> it's been fantastic, Toby, and thank you so much. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this with you. Till we meet again. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World A Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about and beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.